Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to look at the problem of homelessness through the eyes of a Florida middle school teacher and Navy veteran. His name is Tom Rebman. He recently spent a month living as though he were homeless to raise awareness for a food bank and to inspire the kids he worked with. And he told the Deseret News that his experience was the hardest thing he's ever done, that he couldn't have predicted the extent of the realities of living on the street, including sleepless nights, hunger, constant fear. He says every myth that he thought about homelessness was busted. He's become an advocate for the homeless people he met. We're going to talk with Tom Rebman, and we'll also be speaking with Lloyd Pendleton, director of the Homeless Task Force for the state of Utah. Ask him how we're progressing along Utah's 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. We welcome in uh, Tom Rebman. I believe we've uh, reached you in, in Florida. Me? Yes. No, I'm up in, uh, we have a conference going up in uh, Midway. In in Midway. Is is yes. the, is this uh, Mr. Rebman? This is Mr. Rebman here, yes. Okay, so you're in you're in Midway? All right. No, I'm actually in Orlando, Florida right now. Okay. okay. All right, a little confusion. So uh, let me welcome in Mr. Rebman first. So you're in Florida. Yes, sir. And Mr. Pendleton is in Midway. We have a conference going on there in, in Utah. Yes. Okay, thanks to for both of you for coming on the program. We've had Mr. Pendleton on the program several times. I appreciate you uh, coming, coming back. Um, and uh, uh, before we get into Mr. Rebman's story, very interesting uh, story. And uh, he says that some of his uh, conceptions about homeless were uh, were totally shattered by his experience. Let me start with uh, Mr. Pendleton. Um, and uh, having had you on the program several times, I've I've never really gotten into you know some of your biography and how you got into working with with homeless. So I understand you were an executive with Ford Motor Company for several years. Yes, I was back in the Detroit area with Ford. And then uh, served for some 26 years in the welfare department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I guess that would have uh, involved you in, in working, uh, obviously, with, with, with the poor and, and, and the like. Yes. So how- part of it was I, I got loaned out <clears throat> three different times by the LDS Church to work with some agencies that worked with uh, low-income folks and, and homeless individuals. That got me really exposed to that part of the uh, services. So that's how you got into working with, with homeless issues. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, now you are, I think you continue to be, um, the, uh, uh, the working with the uh, state of Utah, the director of the Homeless Task Force for the state of Utah. Right. When I, for the last two and a half years when I was working for the LDS Church, I was loaned out part-time to develop the 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness across the state of Utah. When I retired in 2006 from the state, from the LDS employment, I went to work for the state, and I've been there a little over eight years implementing this 10-year plan across the state. And uh, we'll ask you as we go along a little later in the program how we're doing on on ending chronic homelessness. That's a, a large goal, and I think we're making progress in the state of Utah. Yes, we are. Let me turn to Mr. Redmond. Uh, this is a very interesting story. Uh, tell me why you decided to, uh, why a month, and, and why did you decide to live as, as though you were homeless? Well, originally, this was not supposed to be about homelessness or me living homeless. It was actually designed as a summer reading program for my students. I teach in a highly impoverished school, and I was trying to find a way to keep them engaged over the summer. Uh, my students, you know, live in trailers without windows, et cetera, so I had to keep something engaging for them to read over the summer. I couldn't just assign them a book. And since me and my wife have been feeding the homeless population, I thought it would be a good idea. Mm. To so, go homeless, I can teach them empathy 
and at the same time have them reading and writing over the summer. So I've been reading a little bit. You, you've, you've given a lot of interviews on this, including with the Deseret News here in Utah. Uh, and, and you've said that uh, you thought it would be you know, pretty difficult, but you, you had no idea. Oh, no. It was, it was an unbelievable experience. It was definitely a life-changing experience. Um, I will just tell you, I had no idea what it was like to be homeless, and I don't think the general public does either. I think if they did, we would be able to end chronic homelessness much quicker. So uh, your plan was, I guess you uh, you took your cell phone and your driver's license. You headed out to find somewhere, and um, t- tell me about that first night. Well, the first night I woke up with a gentleman's hand in my pocket about 4 a.m. trying to get whatever I had. I was sleeping on a park bench off of Tampa Street, and that was my welcome to homelessness. Uh, it became more dangerous and, you know, very... Uh, scary for the entire 30 days. That was the hardest part, was being completely insecure and not being able to trust anyone or anything, and being completely on your own is very, very difficult. And you say you got maybe three or four hours of sleep at night. You'd, I guess, just worried. Well, not only that, but when it rains, you get wet. Um, You have to constantly be concerned that the police are going to arrest you, because I had my teaching license on the line, so I had to find very safe places to sleep. Um, because here, if you're outside, you get arrested for being, you know, sleeping or camping outside. So um, I not only that, but the homeless population, you know, because people are so desperate, uh, they tend to prey on each other a little bit, not because they're bad people, but because they're desperate. If you haven't eaten for a couple of days, you'll do things you wouldn't imagine you would do. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so I, I, and you say that, you know, everybody ought to go hungry you know, it, it, at least once, you, you you start thinking about dining and dashing, I guess, and start thinking about anything you can do to get some food. Well, this is what I say when I give talks, is if you've ever been extremely hungry, wait 12 to 18 hours after that. And then you'll see what it's truly like for your instinct to kick in and your survival instinct. And I'll be surprised if you'd walk by a cell phone and not pick it up, even if you're an honest person, because when you're in survival mode, um, that's desperation. That's not dishonesty. Hmm. That's ba- one of the lessons I learned. Yeah. Let me turn back to Mr. Pendleton. Um, there's an interesting uh, portion of the 2013 report on homelessness uh, from the state of Utah. Uh, myths and facts. And, and we'll talk to both of you gentlemen, starting with Mr. Pendleton. So I, I think um, a lot of people think that most homeless are single men. That, that's not the case. A lot of families out there and a lot of children. Yes, about 48, 47, 48 percent of the homeless people, individuals in the state of Utah are members of families. Uh, and that's increased over the last four or five years. The other, I guess, a myth is that people who are homeless stay homeless for a long time. A lot of people are, are homeless in and out. Right. Um, most of the people will be homeless in the shelter if they come to the shelter about 30 days or less. And we work very diligently to get them out of the shelter back into housing. And so it's, you know, it's the long-term chronically homeless, sort of about 10 to 12 percent of the homeless population that's kind of the stereotypical homeless person. But the bulk of them are just short-term homeless. And so it's that long-term chronic homeless, that, that's, that's where you got the 10-year plan. We'll talk about that as we go, go along. Uh, so uh, uh, back to Mr. Rebman, um, what about a shelter? You, you found that shelters might sound good, but they're problematic. Well, I wouldn't say the shelters are problematic, because I would say that the people in shelters have empathy and are trying to help the homeless, and, and they're a necessary need. I will say that 
what I found is that I wish there was more empathy in the shelters, um, you know, and that there was, I guess, really the one thing I found that was very glaring to me was how difficult it was for me, even though I only did 30 days, to uh, come out of that survival mode. Um, so I would think uh, what I am trying to get people to understand is a cooling down period is very necessary for somebody who's been through such a traumatic thing. Um, it's like being at war. It's no different. Um, you're worried about your personal safety 24 hours a day. And um, although the shelters, your question were about the shelters, they're there as a temporary stopgap measure uh, transition. Um, what we need is long-term permanent supportive housing for everybody. Um, and, you know, there's, there's steps to get there. But Utah's on the right track. So uh, tell me about uh, the. Uh, I think you you even talk about PTSD, you know, symptoms. You've experienced PTSD from your from your days in the Navy, I guess, and and you experienced similar things from being homeless. I will tell you that um, you know, as a Navy officer, uh, which I was before I retired in two thousand and one, um, I would run the build plans uh, for an aircraft carrier, and that was very stressful. Um, you know, simulating battle and that type of thing. And I was in some engagements uh, in my Navy career. I would rather be at war for three days than homeless for one. Really? And, and, and it's that simple because when you're, at least when you're um, out in harm's way as a military person, the people that are with you are in the same boat and you're all together. In the homeless community, unfortunately, because of the, the, the need and the desperation, you know, if you go to, you leave your shoes off at night for them to dry out to sleep, they're not going to be there in the morning. Is that because the other person's a bad person? No, it's because they need shoes. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any friends. You're truly alone, and it's PTSD to the max. I only was there 30 days, and I'm still trying to come down from the experience almost 60 days old. Yeah, that's that's quite the statement. Uh, and you, uh, you've said in other interviews that uh, if, if someone doesn't go into being homeless for any stretch of time without some mental problems, they're they're going to come out with some mental problems. You're talking about PTSD. I'm talking about PTSD, and and you, you know you're really a victim when you're homeless. And what I mean by that is you don't have resources, you don't have a place to be safe. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very damaging. I can't see anybody being on the streets for any period of time not having some mental issues to deal with. And that's why I really advocate a cool-down period once we get people off the streets before we give them requirements, because I literally couldn't have fit into a program as a ex-naval officer with a master's degree after that 30 days, you know, doing all my chores, going to all my meetings and all that. How could somebody that's lived it a year, two years, ten years? you know, be expected to do that. Lloyd Pendleton. That was one thing I learned. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Pendleton, that's interesting to me. Does that resonate with you, a, a cooling down period, some some help for people who are coming out <clears> of <throat> homelessness? Yes. Yes, we basically find that when we take people or give them the opportunity to go into housing, um, they and, and we don't put a lot of requirements. Basically, they meet with the case manager uh, and begin to develop that relationship. And it takes several months quite often before they finally get to say, okay, I'm ready to take a look at a treatment program, or I may be interested in looking at a job opportunity. So, and sometimes it'll take two to three years before you have that kind of that confidence, that stabilization, so they can begin to take a look at some other kinds of activities that will help them become more self-reliant. Hmm. 
Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, Utah's housing first philosophy, their uh, 10-year plan, our 10-year plan, I guess. We're in Utah uh, to end chronic homelessness. Lloyd Pendleton has told us that's about maybe 10% of the population. The rest is uh, temporary homeless. Um, and we're talking, uh, looking at this through the eyes of a very interesting experience, life-changing experience Tom Redman had. He's a Florida middle school teacher. He's speaking to us from, from Florida. He's a Navy veteran. And he recently spent a month living as though he were homeless to raise awareness. Uh, and uh, he says he's, he's come to that. It's, it's a life-changing experience for him. Very interesting to look at this through his eyes. We're going to talk more about this, and uh, you're welcome to join the, uh, the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, and you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. We'll have more following a break, during which you'll hear a little bit more about our membership drive. Back after the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business, celebrating the 40th Annual Operational Excellence Conference designed to help inspire organizations to embed the necessary principles to achieve excellence. October 8th and 9th. Details at partners.usu.edu. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. The traits you cherish in your parents may make them vulnerable to fraud. Help your parents practice responses to calls or visits from unwanted salespeople, including, please put me on your do not call list. I don't do business with companies I don't know, or simply I'm not interested. Thank you, goodbye. Take the time to educate them. Encourage them to share information with you. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're looking at the problem of homelessness. Through the eyes of a Florida middle school teacher, he's a Navy veteran as well, Tom Rebman. He recently spent a month living as though he were homeless. And uh, he says the experience was one of the hardest of his uh, life. Every myth he thought about homelessness was busted. We're taking a look at the problem uh, through his experience. We have him on the line from Florida. We're also talking with Lloyd Pendleton, who's director of the Homeless Task Force for the state of Utah. And we're going to talk about how we're progressing along Utah's 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess uh, at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Tom Rubman, uh, one of the, I think, the misconceptions that's out there, and I, I admit that I have had this at times, uh, you see a lot of people panhandling, and uh, you have this idea that uh, maybe they're, you know, maybe making more money than I am at, at panhandling. Well, you, I think you tried this. Well, yes, I, I can tell you that it depends on the laws of where you're at. Where I'm at, except for blue boxes that are painted on the street, you're not allowed to panhandle. So um, I had to panhandle within those boxes, and yes, it was impossible to make any money. Uh, so you um, were... There's places where people can make money being on the street corners and stuff, but the safety issues with that and all are, are overwhelming. I guess the thing that I, that I learned the most is, is that 
you know, shelters cost money to stay in. A lot of people don't realize that. And how does a homeless person get money for a shelter? And, um, you know, there's lots of issues that we were talking about the myths that got busted. Before I went homeless, I would never give a homeless person money because I didn't want to enable them. I didn't want to worry about what they did with it. Um, but after being homeless and understanding that really all they need is money so they can take care of their own needs, I don't feel responsible anymore. Um, and I happily give cash because that's exactly what they need. Mm. They have people already out there feeding them. They have people out there providing other services. What they need is money to do things that they can't, they can't do otherwise. Lloyd Pendleton, what, what what do you say to people about panhandling? Uh, you, you know, you, you're con- you know, I, I know that uh, one of the worries that a lot of people have is uh, they're just going to go drink it away or, or use it on drugs, you know, or, or such. And, and that's a, a legitimate concern. Uh, the panhandlers here in the Salt Lake area and along the Wasatch Front, you see them on the roads and on the interse- at the intersections, etc. Uh, some of the KSL TV here did a fairly major review. And others have done studies, and pretty much a high percentage of them are not homeless. They say they're homeless. Uh, and so, so we, people do become cynical. Uh, homeless people do panhandle, and they do have needs. And when I engage somebody, if I'm going to go to lunch, I'll invite them to go to lunch with me, and I'll buy them some food, have a chance to chat with them, uh, engage to the level they're willing to uh, participate in a discussion. So that's how I've dealt for me personally is I want to get to know them a little bit and have a conversation. But generally here along the Wasatch Front, the, the majority of them are not literally homeless. They may have been at some point in time, but most of them have a place to stay. Mm. What, what do you say to that, Tom Redmond? You, you say that having had this experience, you, you, you don't worry as much. You, you, you'll give cash and it's up to them as what they do with it. No, what I was going to say is getting to know the homeless person is the key. You know, I would ask the homeless person questions and vet them just like I would anybody else. Um, You know, you certainly don't want to give somebody not in need money. But I I guess what changed my opinion is I thought there was a lot of drug addicts and drunks in the homeless community. But what I found is there was less than in society. It's just you see a lot of them, so they seem more prevalent than they are in the homeless community. Um, so my point is, I'm very happy that he said get to know them, because that is the key. Get to talk to them, get to know their name, be empathetic of their situation, and then determine if you should give them something. Uh, Mr. Rebman, tell me about the emotional toll. You you talk about this in, in some interviews. You In, in fact, uh, you know, you get you get, get some money, you go to the 7-Eleven, and, and a guy in front of you whips out a $50 bill, and you, you, you said you felt like punching him in the face, because that could... That could house you for a week well, or whatever. Yeah, that was – well, you know, I'm not going to back off that, Carmen, because it's very true. I had worked very hard panhandling trying to get some money, and I was in a 7-Eleven and could barely buy a bottle of water and watch the guy buy $20 lottery tickets. And I was very angry at him until I realized, you know, hey, you can't be angry at him. He's spending his money his own way. But to me, $20 going for a piece of paper at that point was – blasphemous but of course he doesn't know my situation but yeah it's very difficult to be demeaned all day and to not have any resources and watch people just throw resources away it's very difficult and it's hard not to get jaded as a homeless person when you're trying very hard i applied for over 150 jobs with no luck and the only difference between my application and my real application is i put homeless in the address block so here I am with a master's, two bachelor's, and great references, and I couldn't even get an interview. So how does somebody 
that has issues and on the street get an interview. Uh, Mr. Pendleton, that uh, uh, I believe that would resonate with you. I guess that's one reason why uh, there are a whole host of problems. You and, and I know Utah has a policy of housing first. That's an effort that Utah has been trying to do. Get a person in housing and, and then work on some other problems, I guess. Right. <clears throat> Having that address as being homeless, that just sends up all kinds of uh, barriers for employers because they don't know them. They don't take the time yet to know the individual that potentially is just applying for the job. So having that address becomes really key. And so, see, the old model had been you need to get a person housing ready. They need to be clean, dry, and sober. Then you could put them in the housing. And so we shifted to the new model, which was you first put them in housing, take them right off the street, been on the street for 10 or 15 years. Are there going to be challenges? Absolutely going to be challenges. That's why case management is crucial with this particular population. And so if the case manager works with them, helps them begin to realize this is their house, they can keep their stuff there, it will be safe, it won't be stolen. And so all of those issues of them adjusting into a living circumstance uh, becomes very important. Then when they get to where they can begin to look at other things they'd like to do, treatment programs, uh, job opportunities, and we work with them to help them get into that kind of uh, <clears throat> employment, increase your income through employment. Uh, Mr. Rebman, uh, as you, I wonder if you could expand on this, the problem of getting employment. Uh, at one point, you, you, you know, you're sweaty you're, and you can't take a shower. one point, I think you snuck into a, a motel and, and, and got in the pool, for example. Well, yeah, I, I frankly had to do a lot of things that during my campaign, you know, I was still an Orange County Public Schools teacher, so I couldn't broadcast a lot of the things. I mean, I dined and dashed on four occasions. Now, I did go back and pay all those folks afterwards, you know, after my experience was over. Um, but I stayed in places. I took bird baths in many hotel bathrooms and in people's spigots on the side of their house. And, you know, you get clean the best way you can. I even clean myself up once at Lake Eola in that dirty, nasty fountain water. Hmm. Yeah, I guess you I guess you do what you, you have to do. You become desperate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking with Tom Rebman on the program today. He's uh, joined us uh, by phone from Florida. He's a Florida middle school teacher. He's a Navy veteran, and uh, he lived homeless for a month. He wanted to uh, increase empathy in his, his students. He's a middle school teacher. Uh, he says he thought it would be hard, but he but he had no idea. We're talking about that, seeing the problem through his eyes. We're also talking with Lloyd Pendleton, who is director of the uh, Homeless Task Force for the state of Utah. And uh, we'll, we'll get into talking about Utah's 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. You can join the program here at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. That's uh, at Utah Public Radio. And, in fact, we do have a question that came in uh, through Twitter. This is April. She says, uh, how do you distinguish between people who are not really in need versus the ones who are? Let me start with Mr. Rebman on this question. Well, I mean, it's, you know, that's a very loaded question, and the reason I say that is, is there is no key. You have to go with your gut. But, I mean, if you ask the person some general questions such as, you know, what are your needs or whatever, you can tell if somebody's given you a story. Um, you can also just look at their personal appearance and, and tell a lot about somebody, and I'm not saying we should judge them by appearance, not at all. But I'm saying if somebody obviously hasn't had a shower for three days, they may have more of a need than somebody that has. Mr. Pendleton, same question to you. How, how do you determine, what do you, how do you distinguish? Well, <clears throat> here again, I go back to, 
I used to give out money, and once in a while I still will. If I feel that I should do that, I kind of go with my gut, as, as Mr. Redmond mentioned. Uh, but here again, I basically will invite them to come, because they're usually asking for food, and I will say, come on in, and I'll buy you a sandwich. And uh, sometimes they'll just take the sandwich and leave, but quite often they'll sit down and we'll have a chance to visit and find out. And then I can get a better idea. The last time I had this, is somebody who had moved in from Detroit. He'd just been here two or three days in the Salt area. And as we chatted with him, myself and a, com- a friend of mine at work, and uh, he was looking for services. He did not know where they were in Utah. So we took some time, told him how to get to the shelter, told him how to get to the various place they could pick up services because he'd come in here looking for employment in Utah because our employment, unemployment is much lower than the rest of the country. So it takes some time and a conversation. That's what I've used for me personally as I reach out to try to provide service to those that are in need. Uh, Tom Rudman, I, I wonder, you, you did this at least in part for your students, and I wonder what conversations you've had with, with your students about your experience. Well, I have to tell you that it originally was all about my students, but because of media attention on day four or five, um, it quickly shifted to public awareness. Um, I literally, in the beginning, was putting uh, assignments for my students embedded in my uh, blogs every day and stuff, but uh, it became too challenging to do that. <laughs> I didn't have the time. To, I had to survive, which was a job in itself. Uh, and, and you had the media attention, which I guess is good and bad. Well, it was good because it got awareness, and I have to say that if I I know that the people that followed me on my Facebook page, uh, literally you can go now and watch it from beginning to end, all the videos. Um, they've learned true empathy. It's changed the way they think about homelessness. And I believe if we do that, we can change homelessness. It's the public's perception that needs to be changed. That's interesting. What uh, what uh, what's the biggest thing do you think that needs to be changed? And maybe starting with what was was what was your biggest misconception that you that you had changed? Well, lots of things. For example, you think that somebody can just go stay in a shelter, but you don't realize they have to pay. They get a certain time period, depending on what state you're in, et cetera, and what organization. But you might get a couple of free days in a lifetime or something like that. But for example, here it costs nine dollars to stay in the Salvation Army. And people think you can just go stay in a shelter, or they think that if you're a woman with children, you can stay in a shelter indefinitely, when here they can only stay 90 days, and then they put them back on the street. Um, so there's lots of informational things. Nobody in, in Orlando, even though this ban has been in place since 1998, knew there was a ban on bringing any new social services into the Paramore area of Orlando. Hmm. Um, it just happened back in 98. It's been that way forever. Uh, people have gone without services. Faith-based groups have tried to fight it, but the general public didn't know it existed. It's just a lack of awareness of the issues. Lloyd Pendleton, do you do you agree that's one of the biggest things that that, that can chain make change on this issue is is uh, changing misconceptions and raising awareness? Oh yes, very much so. I think what Mr. Redmond's done is admirable, and I think that's that's great. But here in Utah, there is no charge to stay in the shelter. Other than in the southern Utah, there's a little charge there. But the shelters up here in the north, in Ogden, and in Salt Lake, and various places, they do not have to pay. And there's and there's no waiting list, so the road home, the shelter in Salt Lake City, somebody comes, they will give them a bed, even if they put them on the floor or in the conference room. So, and so, and, and, and so there isn't that requirement of having to have money to go into a shelter. But to have the public aware 
And here in Utah, because we have this housing first approach and the emergency shelter is an emergency shelter because we want them to stay there as short a time as possible. So people, if they contribute to uh, the shelters here in Utah or to the Homeless Trust Fund, which you can do on their tax checkoff, all those funds go to a very effective systems we have put in place in getting people through the shelter system, outreach to those that don't come into the shelters, and getting them into housing first and then working with them in order to stabilize their lives. Mr. Redman, what are the what are the programs there in, in Florida? That's uh, uh, there, there are the faith-based groups. There are some government programs. Uh, what's the need there in Florida in terms of uh, starting with government, I guess? Well, I, you know, I, I am not, uh, I have to tell you, I try to stay out of the solutions business only because I didn't know a lot about homelessness and I'm just now being educated. But I will just say this, you know, depending on where you live and what state, the rules are different and even in what city. And um, the reason that I'm only pushing public awareness of what it's like to be homeless, number one, and number two, what causes homelessness. A lot of people think that most people are out there because of their own doing, and, and a lot are. You know, a lot have issues that have caused them to be there, but the majority of problem is with jobs in our economy right now. We have a lot of working poor that are doing 20 hours at Burger King, but they have to live on the streets because they can't get into an apartment. So there's lots of, I guess the two keys is if the public knows, then they won't allow silly government rules to be put in place, and I think they'll fund this much better. That's just my general overall view. Mm. Lloyd Pendleton, let's let's talk about the ten-year plan to end chronic homelessness. This uh, very ambitious goal, and I think it was put in place about ten years ago. I think we're reaching reaching the end of the ten years. In what, April what's... of two thousand five, the ten-year plan Do... to provide oh. housing opportunity to all the chronically homeless people. So, uh, what's what progress has been made? Well, we've reduced our chronic homeless count by seventy-two percent since two thousand five. We're down to about a little over five hundred individuals that we have identified. We're down from two thousand. And um, and it's gone from our homeless population. Our chronic homeless is about four percent of our numbers now, where it was about fourteen percent back in two thousand five. So we've had some very good success. We've housed over a thousand. We've brought on new, brand new units or remodeled units, so we can put them into housing. And it's affordable housing, so you have Section Eight vouchers, so that and that they still pay thirty uh, percent of their income or $50, whichever is greater. So there's still some accountability when these individuals go into housing or into an apartment because a lot of people think it's just a giveaway and there's not any accountability there. Well, we feel it's very important that they do something, and we help them get on to general assistance, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, because they have disabilities and they are eligible for those mainstream resources or case managers work with them. But they can be evicted if they do not pay their rent or if they are um, violent with their neighbors. Um, and so, you know, so that's part of it. We only have about a 6% eviction rate for these individuals who are very challenging. So we think that's very, very low given the population with whom we're working. That, that is impressive progress. I know yes, so, some surrounding states are, you know, I could use the word jealous. I, I read an article where you up in, in Idaho, invited up there by homeless advocates up there, and they're, they're trying to, to, to do some modeling after Utah's uh, program. Um, so you think be able to, to reach that goal? I guess the, the 10 years is up and next year. Right. So we're committed 
to giving them a housing opportunity. So when we say end chronic homelessness, we know there are people who are housing resistant. That we invited several people to come into housing that they are so have so many mental health issues to go in and live within four walls. It's very lonely, and they do have friends. Uh, they develop a friend and support group out on the street, even though it's unsafe, and they do get victimized, no question. So and we think probably maybe around three three percent. Two to three percent will probably be housing resistant. So as a community, we're basically saying we can go and give them a housing opportunity, and that's our moral obligation and opportunity, and we should be doing that. But we still honor their choice. I will continue to outreach to them, and will continue to invite them. And I heard the story as I was at the conference, and they told about the person in Houston where the outreach worker went out every day and sometimes twice a day, and on the 753rd invitation, he finally said, okay, I'll go into housing. Mm. So we continued outreach. Uh, We made that commitment. But by the end of 2015, we want to have enough housing that we can say, you can come in if you so choose. And uh, so that's that's impressive progress on chronic homelessness, and that's the goal. That's the, you know, the sort of the the, the chronically homeless people. That, That... that's about 10%. So the, the other 90% are, are people who are homeless for a while and then back into housing, maybe back and forth. We'll uh, talk a bit about that. We're going to take a break uh, soon. I want to go back to uh, Mr. Uh, Rebman. And I wonder, um, you talked about how there's a misconception out there that a lot of the homeless are to blame for their situation. Um, so I wonder if you could expand on, on that. There, I, I imagine there would be some who are mentally ill, out there in, in some who, for whatever circumstance, uh, found themselves homeless, maybe because of abuse at home and, and, and the like. Uh, tell me about the, 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 the kinds of people you met on, on the street. Well, the stories are varied, as varied as individuals are. I mean, um, and to categorize them, I would just say that I saw a graph as I was doing some research that said about 35% are job-related. And I can tell you that equates with what I saw on the street. I met families. uh, I'll tell you about one family, for example, I met in the woods. Um, It was a husband who had been working as a painter, making $11 an hour. His wife is disabled. He had two children. Um, They were living in a camp because he showed up one day at work, and it said bankrupt on the door. And he didn't get his paycheck for the last two weeks, so they immediately were, you know, within a week were evicted for not paying their rent. And they lived in their car for a while, and now... You know, he's trying to find a job, but the job market's very difficult, especially if you're somebody um, that has challenges. And so him and his family are in the woods, and I didn't realize there were so many of those stories. You know, just like everybody else in society, I had a bad misconception that a lot of them were people that were with disabilities and mental issues and substance issues, when in truth, you know, 40% of them are no different than you and I in any way, shape, or form when they go homeless, and they would have bet a year before they'd never be homeless in their life. I guess a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck, right? And they're one one bad break away. Uh, so how do you... I think everybody's one bad break away. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. Yeah, I think you, I think that's right. So then uh, if if a family, you know, like the one you just told me about, to find themselves out in the woods, what, uh, there are a lot of barriers to getting back, getting back to housing. There, there's tons of barriers, and the, and the biggest key is, you know, they're worried about losing their children um, to CPS, you know, because obviously children shouldn't be living in the woods. I agree they shouldn't be. 
Um, so they have that barrier they have to fight and worry about who they can trust and who they can't because they don't want to give up their kids. Of course, nobody would want to. Um, and they try their best to reach out to resources. But a lot of times when people find themselves in this situation, they're isolated information-wise, too. So, you know, it, it's just a very difficult situation to get out of, and people don't realize how many um, people are not in that situation because of substances or, you know, old military issues or whatever. Uh, Lloyd Pendleton, what if you talk about barriers for the temporarily homeless to getting back to, to housing? How do you how do you lower those barriers? <clears throat> well, you lower those barriers, and as Mr. Redmond said, they are information isolated. And so here in Utah, we have about only about 12% of our homeless people are unsheltered. We have a pretty extensive shelter system. It's relatively low compared to the rest of the country. And when they come into the shelter, then we have case managers start working with them, especially families. And we will find that within about 30 days, 50% will move out of the shelter into housing with no financial assistance. All they needed was information, contacts with various uh, other services, uh, landlords are willing to rent. Uh, and so 50%, or 49 to 51%, will move out with no financial assistance. The other 50% will move out in about 30 to 35 days, and it will cost about $4,800 to help them get down payment and get into rent. So we work very diligently to connect them with services and information so they can move out, because a lot of them are. They've just been booted out. Uh, they went to live with a family. They got booted out of there, went to live with a friend, got evicted from there after a few weeks, <clears throat> and they end up in the shelter. Very few come straight from their job, they live somewhere with other families doubled up. And so they're, they're at the last, you know, on their last straw. So the shelters, we've designed them so that now they get that connection and get out into housing. So we feel good about what we're doing. So people are not staying in the shelter a long time, or they were five or six, seven, eight years ago. Come down to the last couple of minutes of the, of the program. Uh, so I want to uh, start with uh, Mr. Redman on, on this you know, final question. Um, what, having gone through this experience, now advocating for, for homeless, uh, what would you say to, you know, for, for example, if I encounter a homeless person or, or I think about this problem, I feel stuck and I don't know what to do. What, what can I do? What should I do? I won't be the last. Um, you need to get to know that homeless person because I'll tell you, you know what I needed more than a meal or uh, a dollar or whatever? What I needed was somebody to care about me because when you're out there and, I mean, literally I was told get a job and called names and all those things, and you're doing that while you're suffering, while you're trying your best, and a lot of the resources aren't available to you, Internet access or even air conditioning or a bathroom. People don't realize how difficult it is when you're homeless just to find a, a bathroom or air conditioning. So, you know, it's just we, we need to be empathetic of our homeless. That's, that's what I learned is they need a hand. They need somebody to get to know them because no person I know has gotten off the street without somebody's support. Uh, and uh, just uh, just final with you, Mr. Redman, uh, you, this experience has been life changing. You're you're now a, a, you know whether you want it to be or not, you're a voice for for the homeless. Uh, oh, let me ask you uh, where to go to to look at uh, your experience, your your uh, your posts and such. You said you had a Facebook page. Where can people go to to see the timeline of your experience and and your posts and such? 
It's www.facebook.com backslash hungry and homeless. Okay, so people can go and, and take a look at that. Uh, you, are you still teaching? Actually, I have not gone back to teaching this year. Uh, I'm doing nothing but giving speeches, and I've been on the street just as much since I got home, literally the day after I was on the street at 7 a.m. I, It's changed my life because, unfortunately, I have a level of empathy and investment that I didn't plan on. So I'm kind of stuck doing this until I make some sort of change. Uh, well, we appreciate you uh, coming on with us and, uh, and telling us your experience. Um, let me just close with Mr. Pendleton. And the same question I asked Mr. Rebman, what, you know, if, if people feel stuck, it's a big problem. We've made progress on uh, chronic homelessness in sm- no small part due to, to people like you. But uh, if you meet a homeless person, if you want to help the problem in, in general uh, or solve the problem in general, what, what do you do? What do you suggest people do? Well, for me, and this is how I've resolved it because of, of my background in the theology, we reach out to help people who are very compassionate. I, I basically try to take at least a few minutes and just talk to them and find out. And if they're willing to come in and have a sandwich with me or to, to get a cup of coffee or something, I'll buy them. Just kind of sense. And if I, if I feel prompted inside, if I just have that concern, if they're not willing to come in and sit down and have a conversation, I may give them some money. I may give them two or three or four or five dollars if I feel so inclined. I generally don't because I can sense that most of them are just, they're not homeless and they're going to be using it for drugs and alcohol, and that's the real risk. But there are those that are homeless at Panhandle, and I try to sort those out. So that moment, that conversation, and just saying hi to them, even shaking their hand, because they may not have been touched for days, Mm. is a very powerful message to say, I care for you as a person. And I guess in addition to that, that's very good advice from both of you gentlemen. Uh, you can you can find, I guess, the soup kitchens and and services and and donate money. Right, so, and and yeah. I'll ask them to say, you know about you know about the lunch program and the meal program down at this location. And if they don't, I will tell them about it. If they do, then they say I don't go down there. I don't go to the shelter. They're basically, you know, and maybe some legitimate reasons, but just that moment of interacting with them to find out where they are then go with where you feel you should, what you should do. Well, we've been talking about uh, homelessness. We've been looking through the eyes of Florida middle school teacher and Navy veteran Tom Rebman. He's recently spent a month living as though he were homeless to raise awareness for, for the, on this issue and to, and to inspire his kids. And uh, now he's taking at least one year off from uh, teaching and, uh, and is involved in advocacy for homelessness issues. So, Tom Rebman, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I'm very proud of what Utah is doing. I wish we were in Florida. Well, thank you very much, and uh, and uh, Mr. Pendleton, Lloyd Pendleton is uh, director of the homelessness uh, homeless task force for the state of Utah, and has uh, been with us. Thank you so much for coming back on with us, Mr. Pendleton. You're certainly welcome. Thank you for your good work you do, Tom. Oh, thank you. Uh, and uh, coming up tomorrow, hope you'll join us for the program. There is a new organization. It's called the uh, Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. They're putting on a conference at Utah Valley University on Thursday. Uh, it's called Live More with Less. They say to attack the problems of sustainability and uh, climate change. Uh, we it's, it's all well and good to talk about the su- uh, supply side, but demand side is where we need to look. We need to live more simply, and they'll tell us ways to do that. We'll talk with the members of the panels there, including a gentleman uh, from the Post Carbon Institute. That's coming up tomorrow. And for today, thanks for listening to Access Utah.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Athletics, offering Aggie men's basketball season tickets for all 18 home games, including BYU. Information is at utahstateaggies.com or at the USU Spectrum Ticket Office. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. The traits you cherish in your parents may make them vulnerable to fraud. Help your parents practice responses to calls or visits from unwanted salespeople, including, please put me on your do not call list. I don't do business with companies I don't know, or simply I'm not interested. Thank you. Goodbye. Take the time to educate them. Encourage them to share information with you. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and K. And KUSU FM 91.5 Logan.